Hey everyone, welcome to JCB Art Studios Season 5. My name is Joanna. I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. And Spy Girls is coming out September 30th. <laughs> I retired and it took me longer to write that book than when I worked full time. Don't ask me why. Okay, <laughs> It's writing. Today, oh, today I have Martha Ann Toll with me, and it is an author and honor to interview Martha. And I'm going to tell you listeners a little bit about her. Uh, first thing is overnight, I became a fan. Now, Martha is the author of the novel Three Muses, her debut novel, which was shortlisted for the Gotham Book Prize and won the Petricor Prize for Finely Crafted Fiction. It has received glowing reviews from the Washington Post, Vulture, Kirkus Star Review, and many other outlets. Martha is a book reviewer and author interviewer at NPR Books, the Washington Post, Point Magazine, The Millions, and other, other places as well. She brings a long career in social justice to her work covering writers of color and women writers. Martha also publishes short fiction and essays. And in 2021, she was excited to be nominated for a Pushcart Prize for her short story, The Jiggle. Her short fiction has also been, appeared in Catapult, Volume 1 Brooklyn, Emerge, Slush Pile Magazine, Yale's Letters Journal, Journal, Poetica e-magazine, and elsewhere. A graduate of Yale University and Boston University School of Law, Martha has recently joined the board of directors of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. She lives with her climate activist husband and her espresso machine just outside of Washington, Washington, D.C., and they are the lucky parents of two daughters. Martha, welcome. Thank you, Joanna. And that was such a generous um, and warm introduction. I'm thrilled to be here. And congratulations on your forthcoming book. That's great. I don't know why it took longer, but you know, it's writing. It's writing. Okay. It takes a long time. <laughs> an elephant can give birth to a baby elephant in 22 months, and yet I'm retired and it took me longer. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> now, three muses. I have to. I have to read this this review here. Um, author link interview. They say three muses is sublimely written. Every sentence is a joy to read, even though the prose is tight and disciplined. It's also elegant and flowy, just like ballet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the words are beautiful. Um, the imagery imagery that I, I read, and I am facing a dilemma. So as you could imagine, with each podcast, I get, um, you know, sam book samples sent to me ahead of time. And with publishing a podcast just about each week, you know, sometimes I can't read the full book. Okay. So I start reading your book. I have the PDF 
And I am loving it so much that I'm like, I want the book book. I want the real book. So <laughs> I ordered it from Amazon. It arrives on Friday. And then I was thinking, do I keep reading with the PDF pages or do I wait for the book book? And I thought, I want to wait with, for the book book. So I'm on page 98. Amazon notified me it, it's arriving tomorrow. So I'm like, yes. <laughs> okay, I love that. That's a great story. Thank you. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so I have to ask, how does it feel when you learn that Point magazine selected three muses for its five new ballet books to look forward to this fall? Well, of course, I was totally thrilled. So Point Magazine is what it sounds like. It's a ballet magazine um, about ballet. In other words, they don't usually cover other forms of dance, of which, you know, there are millions of other forms. Um, and I'm a fiction writer, not a ballerina. Um, I have a ballerina for a protagonist, but it was very thrilling to inhabit the body of a ballerina and have the ballet, the real ballet people acknowledge that. So it, it's thrilling. And people will understand why we're talking about ballet and ballerinas in a, in a moment here. Now, in the beginning of the story, there's a page that's titled Creation Stories. And the first quote, okay, I'm, I'm not even going to give any lead in because I want the listeners to have the same reaction I did. So the first quote, I wrote, what is more beautiful than the hopeless singing? Dear Finder, listen. Allison Bennis White in a letter found buried near a gas chamber. Can you explain explain that to me and the listeners? Yeah, sorry, that's a tough one even for me. Um, I was at a writing conference um, some years ago, I think maybe in 2017, and I went to a panel on poetry post-Holocaust, and it was specifically focused on children and grandchildren, Holocaust survivors. Grandchildren in particular have there's a genre almost of grandchildren who have access to this material because it's very common that Holocaust survivors could not speak about their experience. And thus their children were not really able to educate their own children about it. So it's the third generation that's digging around very, very deeply. And Alice Bennis White is a poet. Um, she's on a university faculty in California. I think UC Irvine. I, not, I'm not totally sure, but she's a well-published poet. And she read this poem, and it just blew my mind. So I got her book and asked if I could use it. But I do want to say it's a reference to what actually happened at concentration camps, where people who knew they were not going to survive buried writing near the gas chambers in hopes that somebody would find it in the future to bear witness. Okay, yeah. Now the next one is... Dance is the hidden language of the soul, of the body. And I believe in discipline. I believe in a very definite technique. Martha Graham. Well, I think you know Martha Graham was an icon of modern dance. She 
I wouldn't say she single-handedly invented it, but she helped get it on the map and is is iconic, as I said, in the 20th century annals of dance. And I love that quote because it is it is the language of the body. It's it's a medium where the body is actually the instrument and the medium for the art form. And I love that you talked about discipline, which I think you and I will get to in a little while. Yeah. And it, this morning when I was, you know, just getting breakfast together, I was thinking about scenes and your book with the ballet instructor. And I was thinking about um, Catherine or Katya. And I thought, man, it's like her body is a vehicle for dance. That's like what her body is, right? Like that, that was just the thought I had. Okay. So we're going to start with the title, Three Muses. I did a little research and learned that there are nine muses. So what are the three muses in your novel? So we um, understand Greek mythology. If I, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I think it comes to us from various sources. And the most agreed upon classical sources say that there were nine muses. We've heard a lot. And there was a muse of arts, a muse of history, a muse of poetry. Um, so um, they were supposed to inspire all of these art forms. And um, I was basically on Google doing research. And I learned that from the Greek region of Boeotia, which is part of Greece, they had a different concept of who the muses were. And they thought there were only three. And the three were song discipline, and memory. And I felt like I had been struck by lightning. Those are the things that I'm most interested in. I felt like, oh, somebody just gave me a big gift. So I can talk about how their role in the book, but I want to make sure I'm not getting ahead of our conversation. Okay. Now, the book, our, our listeners have, must know by now, encompasses ballet, the Holocaust, becoming a citizen of the U.S., overcoming trauma and healing. And I was wondering, what did you start with first? Um, was it like, what was the, I am going to write a novel about, you know, uh, or was it a matter of a character coming to you first? Uh, for example, like John Curtin or Katya Story. It's what, how did it, how did it come together? I think what happened, you know, I started, you were talking about it taking a long time. I started working on this in 2010, and it wasn't really ready to go out for publication until sort of 2018. So it took a long time. And then I revised it since then. So um, I think that the two characters came to me. So John um, is, I guess, a composite of Holocaust survivors that I knew growing up and um, he is a very loving, caring person, and he survives the Holocaust because his mother identifies him as a little boy when she's in line for the gas chamber with his brother, as a little boy who can sing. And so his name at that time was Yanko, and Yanko is pulled out of line, and he survives by singing for the commandant, is actually singing for his family's killer. So he has a really fraught relationship with music. Um, that's the song part of the three muses. It is the means to his saving, and it's also the means of his greatest trauma. Um, so he he 
I'm really interested in that double-edged part of music. And so I had him, and then Katya just, she's the ballerina who John falls in love with, like a little bit like a fairy tale. He's just at the, he's at a conference in Paris and somebody hands him a ballet ticket. And um, she came to me much more sort of, I don't know where she came from. She just arrived. And I think that I had them before I discovered the three muses. And then when I looked at those, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my story. John is close to song. Katya is close to discipline, discipline of being a ballerina. But one of the things I love about that word in Greek, it's also translated as preparation for prayer. So it means discipline and preparation for prayer. And I kind of love that transcendent spiritual aspect of the word. And then memory is the third muse, and memory is the most powerful. And they both, of course, are wrestling with their memories. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, as you could tell, I'm a fan of your work and your writing. <laughs> and I have to read a paragraph from page four. The word John's point of view, he's in peril. And just before he's given the ticket to the ballet. And it's, um, it's, I don't want to use the word, it's an intriguing, I don't want to use the word sexy, but it's just, uh, I just got to read it. Okay. So this is John. Wending his way back through neighborhood streets, John stopped at a cafe, seduced by the tinkle of silverware and glass. Over Café Creme, he recalled Anne as if she were a gauzy film image, lovely, naked, her smooth skin, her sumptuous breasts, black garters striping her thighs, exotic zebra markings to which he alone was privy. (laughs) I I, I think that that was my reaction. I read that and just kind of looked up like, wow, okay, ah. Thank so did you, you so much. After I read that, uh, like I literally, I think I just looked up and thought, wow, okay. Now, is, is that a gem from 2010, <laughs> first draft? Uh, that's so interesting. It's it's early. Um, so John is, much of this book takes place in the 1950s. If you think about it, uh, World War II ended in 1945, and most waves of Jewish refugees couldn't get into, I don't know about Canada, but they couldn't get into the United States until 1948 because it took President Truman and Congress to lift the restrictions on immigration. I don't know what Canada did, yeah. um, but in the United States, it was late. So people were sitting around in displaced persons camps. So John arrives in the United States as an older teenager in 1948. And so his young adult life is during the 50s. And um I'm really thrilled that you picked that phrase out because I wanted it to have a 1950s feel. His first girlfriend is like icky. It's it's um, and he's got a lot of 1950s attitudes. <laughs> icky is not a professional word. I'm sorry. No, but just exotic zebra markings. I just thought, oh gosh. <laughs> okay. So excellent, excellent. Thank you. And I have another one. So we have one from Katya's point of view, and that's on page 10. 
Katya danced through life alone. Her memories had grown hazy with time. A few. Mama's toothy grin when she handed her daughter her school lunchbox. Mama's throaty laugh. Her butterscotch house dress with the white rickrack. For years, Katya kept up an ongoing monologue addressed heavenward as if her soliloquies could coat the void that was mama. Again, another one. We're, oh, (laughs) I'm going to show you my page. You know, where I've got stars and (laughs) butterscotch house dress, okay? And, you know, her ongoing monologue addressed heavenward. I just, it's beautiful. They're beautiful words. And it's, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And I think the reason that, um, so Katya's mother is killed when she's seven in a car crash. So both both John and Katya have lost their mothers. Um, but what I love about what you chose in each of these were um, articles of clothing that I don't think possibly younger generations know about. One was garters that, thank God, we have pantyhose and tights, but there were these horrible things you had to use to hold up your stockings, and women couldn't appear in public without stockings. They're incredibly uncomfortable. And then um, rickrack is just a term. It's it's um, triangular trim that goes around the bottom of skirts or dresses. It's something that um, I'm very familiar with growing up, but I don't think you see it too much anymore. I'm not sure. And house dresses. Like my grandmother always wore a house it was called a house dress, something in the house that you could cook in and clean in, but you would never be seen outside in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> it's butterscotch, using that as a as a description. And immediately, ooh, I was there. And then I was thinking, this is beautiful. Okay. so Thank you. <laughs> I have pages here where I've folded down the corners. And I thought, okay, you, have, you can't just go through this podcast reading her work. Right? <laughs> But this is a good time to say that there is an audio recording available. So there's a wonderful actor who recorded it. Oh, Marie Hoffman, and it's available everywhere, you know, on Amazon. But it's available anywhere. There audio. You can buy audiobooks, Spotify, anywhere. So I want to let listener, your listeners, know that that you can listen to it. I have just started getting into audiobooks, and I'm loving it because I can create my art and listen. Yeah, no, I'm, I've am i kind of addicted myself. I, I read a lot now by audiobooks, and I never thought I'd get there, but it's true. Like, I cook a lot or walk, whatever. It's great. Yeah. So would you say there's a little bit of your soul in each one of these characters? Yes. You know, I was lucky enough that you sent your questions ahead, and I love that question. So the way I think of this is my very primitive understanding of Carl Jung, I think the way he talked about dreams is that you're a character in all of your dreams. And I've always thought that applies to literature. I mean, the writer is writing all of these characters. Of course, it's got to be a piece of yourself in all of them, even if you don't recognize it as you're going along. And I don't. I sometimes am surprised that there's somebody on the page that has similarities to me. And then I'm, well, wait a minute, I'm writing it. So, of course. So, I do feel there's something of myself in them. Yes. Good. Good. Okay, now we're going to talk about the Holocaust, how you write about it. It's from the point of view of young John Yanko. And I was mentioning this to my, I just finished my lap class with the writer's studio 
through Simon Fraser University up here. Mm-hmm. And I was telling them how you don't go into detail of what's happening at Alt-Reich Judenfrei. You weave in and you weave in, for example, Yanko, sorry, Yanko does not want to go outside because of the smell of the burning. And you you start reading and you, he's pulled out of the lineup and his mother is just telling him, sink, sink, because she's trying to save his life, right? And you wove in such little details like that, where, as you can tell, it's still having an impact on me, okay? And do you think by weaving it in, it's more impactful than, let's say, starting off with uh, Yanko arrived at Altric Judenfrei and saw, and then go into like a, a paragraph? What, what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're tapping into something that's very important to me. Of course, I thought a lot about this. The Holocaust is overwhelmingly huge, and the more you learn about it, the worse it is. It's so the crimes are so massive and so um, gigantic in terms of ge- geographical scope. I mean, they, there were gas chambers, but there were also pits dug with thousands, tens of thousands of people shot to death. You know, after they dug their own graves. And I think it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming for anybody. So this is a fictional uh, trope, but I think it's true that one person's story is sometimes more powerful than all the statistics in the world. So I decided to tell that story from Yanko's perspective. He's 11 when he arrives at the concentration camp, and he knows something's really wrong, but he can't be specific about it. So he's going through his head, thinking about the, the course of his deportation. He grew up in Mainz and was deported first to a school and then to a ghetto. This was the the track for, for German Jews. They, they were, a lot of them were sent east, but not necessarily directly into the concentration camps. They were holding ghettos all over Poland and other parts of Europe. And we know that Warsaw Ghetto is very famous, but there were lots of them. Um, So he can't really make sense of what's going on as I don't think he can make sense of it, the madness and the criminality. Um, So he's thinking about it to himself as he's experienced it. And I thought maybe that would be better and more powerful than citing a bunch of facts, if that makes sense. Yeah. God is so powerful, yeah. And the other thing you do, I'm just thinking one line there. Um, I'm hoping I'm not getting ahead. Where after he wonders why he survived, another thing you do is it's a black soldier who finds Inko, and that made me stop and think. And I thought of all the war movies, you know, uh, mega director, mega mega actor starring in these war movies. And I thought, when has there been a black soldier? And you have a black soldier finding Yanko. And then it made me think, there's been a huge misrepresentation. Yes. So there were definitely 
Um, the United States Army was segregated during the war. It was Truman who desegregated the army, and it was it was in the early fifties, I think, the American Army. So this is the, so insane. You know, black men were they were drafted, but a lot of them signed up because they wanted to serve their country. And the troops were completely segregated. So I have two things to say about it's it's absolutely true that there were black troops who liberated the camps. Um, you can read about this. It's certainly the U.S. Holocaust Museum, I'm sure, elsewhere. But we never hear that. That's thing one. And thing two is my dad was a World War vet, and I would ask him about it. And he said it was incredibly upsetting. Like, they... In where, in where he was, so he was wounded in the Battle of the Bulge, which is why he survived probably. But the the black soldiers had much more menial tasks in his section of, of the army. So they were dishwashers, kitchen patrol, that kind of thing. Um, and it was clear to my dad, you know, that it was a complete waste. And then I guess possibly worse than all of this is when black soldiers returned to the United States and the United States Congress couldn't do enough to help soldiers out. So we had the GI Bill, which paid for education, higher education, graduate school, college graduate school. And we had um, the housing bill, which had was designed to uh, mortgage relief for soldiers. And, and black soldiers were completely kept out of that. They were they were discriminated against. They were made fun of. They didn't get the housing benefits that everybody else got, and they didn't get the GI benefits. I mean, we have a very ugly history of racism in our country. I don't have to tell your listeners; I'm sure they know that. And I feel very it's very important to expose it. Yeah. Oh, I oh, I never knew about that history in yeah. terms of the bills that were passed to help, and they couldn't. Have access to I mean, some of it was written into the law and some of it was just de facto. Like you would go to get your mortgage and you couldn't get a mortgage, even though there were mortgage subsidies for returning soldiers. But black people would be told they couldn't get them. Um, and it's a horror story. It's a real horror story. Okay. Now, another character you have is Fro Rao Hoke. And she's the com- commandant's cook, seamstress, seamstress, housekeeper. And she watches out for Yanko. And again, you know, Yanko is growing and he's growing out of his clothes. And it's when Frau comes in with a pair of wool trousers and two shirts. And she says to him, don't ask where these are from. You know, and it's just like, oh. You know, and she she doesn't give them these these items of clothing to them until she scrubs them in the sink. And then Yanko is noticing her hands are looking redder. And I'm just like, oh, so these characters, even Frau, I'm thinking, is there a connection to your there's got to be a connection to your family's tragic experiences of the Holocaust? Um, well, I'll answer the second part of your question yeah. first. Uh, my mother had a German, part of my mother's family was German, and um, her 
cousin, first cousin was able to get out of Germany bringing their grandmother, but the rest of her first cousin's family perished at Auschwitz. And that is something I knew from my earliest memory, very powerful information, but in a way it's it's like a little bit contradictory. I knew about it, but it was also never discussed. I mean, it was a thing that was said, my grandmother would say, oh, there was that Nazi business, but nobody ever really talked about what that meant. And then the older I got, the more I realized, okay, this is my mother's uncle and, and aunt, first cousin who were murdered. So this is very close in relatives. And um, Ellen, the cousin, came to this country and made a very good life for herself and um, married children, grandchildren. And she wrote this beautiful autobiography for her children, which she shared with us, her cousins, about growing up in Mainz. So she's, she was very influential in terms of the description of Mainz for its normalcy, for the integration of Jews into all aspects of society. Jewish soldiers were um, all served in World War I, and many of that was another reason why they were so slow to recognize the threat because they were Germans first and Jews second, much like Jewish life in America and Canada where we are quite assimilated. Um, so that was brought home to me really powerfully. The, the character of Frau Koch, who um, you mentioned, is the cook for the commandant, and she has this very gruff exterior, um, but you, you haven't finished the book, but you figured it out. She's very much responsible for helping Yanko survive. She gives him food scraps and she tries to protect him from what's going on. And Yanko can't really process this until he's much, much older. So Yanko becomes John in America and he trains to be a psychiatrist and his training psychiatrist brings him to the realization that there were people watching out for him all along and Frau Koch was one of them. Um, and he recognizes he, he couldn't see it as a child. He was very threatened by her and angry that she was basically keeping him indoors. But he realized later that she saved his life. And I think for all the horrors of war and the horrors of the Holocaust, there are unlikely heroes that aren't we don't know about yeah. that help people for whatever reason. There is an extraordinary story by a friend of mine whose dad was a German refugee and he it was a little boy he broke his arm when he was nine and he wasn't allowed to see a doctor because he couldn't see doctors jews couldn't get medical help and his mother knew of a catholic doctor down the block who would see him and the doc they went in the dark of night and the catholic doctor just opened his door so you have to come in really quickly close the door you know, I put a cast on him, but they had to do it at nighttime, so nobody knew the Catholic the Catholic doctor would have been murdered if if it was known that he had taken care of a Jewish boy. Stuff like that, like that guy's a hero, yeah, for doing this basic humanitarian service, which we shouldn't have to even be talking about. Yeah, yeah, and I know where we will get into Katya's story, and um, but let me say it's how you write this. You know, it's it's oh, compelling, and you just have a hard time putting the book down. And you know, yeah, yeah, okay. So, like, you write a like it's yeah, okay. <laughs> now, John is coping, 
the end, you mentioned this, he's trying to understand. I just realized I had a typo. He's trying to under, he's trying to understand what does it mean to be a Jew? And that's a question he asks himself, okay? And he's struggling to fit in and find his his identity. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, and I think you were asking, excuse me, um, you know, so where am I in this book? So I grew up in a very, very secular family. Like, we didn't celebrate anything. And excuse me, I had a very limited Jewish education. So um, I understand the questions that Yanko's dealing with. Like, I actually wanted to educate myself and ended up having to do it sort of as I got older. I wanted to know where I came from. But at the same time, um, particularly in Germany, um, a lot of people use has say, I didn't know I was Jewish until Hitler came to power. It wasn't, it was the Germans by and large were not a religious community at all and thought of themselves as Germans first. And that's much more like my family. And um, so he has to say, you know, being Jewish is the reason that his family was slaughtered. But what does it mean to him? What does it mean to him? That's what he says that. In, yeah, that's he, it's mm-hmm. right in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, there's Catherine and Katya. Mm-hmm. Now, you went to the School of Pennsylvania Ballet, and there's this sweet photo of you on your website by the <laughs> bar. And uh, you know, Katya, in your book, is the ballerina. Mr. Yanakov is the instructor. And it's, it's interesting because you're, you're reading about Katya's story. Right. And you think, oh, okay, maybe a little lighter. Uh-uh. <laughs> uh-uh. Okay. So it's like it's looking all good, right? He, he's grooming Katya, and she's going to be a prima ballerina of the New York State Ballet. And she's 17, yet there is this foreboding because Mr. Yanukov is he's a possessive, and he's abuser. He is abusing so how did Catherine come about? Like, yeah, because I'm just, I'm still wondering, these two characters come into this in this story. Yeah, talk to me about Catherine. I'll shut up. <laughs> yeah, so Catherine's um, a girl who grew up in Queens, but like many ballerinas and actresses in the 1950s, Yanakov, who is her instructor and also the choreographer for the company, insists that she have a Russian name. So he gives her a Russian name, Katya Simonova, to make her more appealing on stage. And that that was very commonly done with American ballerinas. I guess with Canadian ballerinas, I know with British ballerinas also. Um, So she has this great honor, but also something of an imposter syndrome, like how do I fit into my name, basically? And more than that, Boris Yanukov, um, who is a mesmerizing genius choreographer, is also a predator. And so she ends up being in a sexual relationship with him that is meant to be complex. This is the 1950s. And it didn't occur to me to sanitize this. I mean, I think this was incredibly common. Unfortunately, it's still common today, but it was really common in the 1950s where you have, you know, a genius, whatever, musician, ballet coach, whatever, in sexual relationship with young young women. And Katya, because ballet training is so intense, you really don't know any other world. Um, you know, you 
still, this is still true today. You don't tend to finish high school. You, you know, you tend to get a high school equivalency degree. Most ballerinas don't go to college. They go straight into professional work age 16, 17. That's in fact what happened with Katya. And I, when the book came to, to, to publication, it's the first time I thought, you know what? A lot of people are going to object to this. It's objectionable. I met, I wrote it to be objectionable, but I probably need a trigger warning because in today's society, we talk about trigger warnings. So the back cover of the book does flag the fact that um, this is an abusive relationship. It absolutely is, yeah. but it's not just abusive. They also, there is some love between them. And Katya is the co-creator of many uh, Boris Yannikov's ballets, and she isn't being given credit. So she's more focused on that problem than on this relationship, this incredibly fraught, uneven power dynamic that she has with the choreographer. And while we're here, I always like to tell readers this. I made up all the ballets in this book um, because I felt like the existing repertoire was, uh, I wasn't going to be able to learn it well enough, and it really wasn't about what I'm writing about. So I a couple of years in, I decided I needed to do this. So all the ballets are fictional, and they're meant to tie in with the plot. Hey, cool. Okay. <laughs> it was fun, yeah. <laughs> and as you were talking, I just scribbled down here the word identity. Because you were mentioning how um, Yanukov says, you're going to be Katya. You're not going to be Catherine. And then as you're talking, I thought both characters, both characters are struggling with identity. Like who are right. they really? Like it just both, right, right. Both characters have name changes. And I think names are really important. And I think in one sense, so um with John's name, I was reflecting what happens with very, very um commonly, certainly with Jewish families coming into America, I think the same thing happened in Canada where the immigration officers couldn't like figure out what they were saying. So everybody got shortened different names. So we, we don't know our own history because we don't, because the name was changed. So John wants to do this himself. His name is Yonko Stein in the old country. And he thinks, well, I, everybody in America is named John. So I think I'll name myself John. And then he was like, why don't I name myself Curtin? Because I want to draw a curtain over my past. But he gets advice from somebody who doesn't know how to speak English, so he doesn't even spell a name right. Um, but so his name change was his, he elected to do this, and he thought by doing this, oh, everyone will know I'm I'm um, American, no problem. Um, I always think of my dad's friend who was German, Jewish, possibly Austrian, Viennese, I think, and his family was able to make it to England. And... They his name was Walter Stein. I'm sure that's where I got this idea. And the family changed the name to Cromwell. And <laughs> wow. Okay, that is a really British name. I'm not sure if it solved the problem of fitting in, but you can't pick a more a more British name. And that that's a common story. That's a very common story. Um, so, but Katya. So John makes this decision, although it doesn't necessarily help with him um, settling in America. But Katya doesn't make that decision. It is imposed on her. And the name is fraught because of the responsibilities that it comes with. Yeah, yeah. And actually, um, personally, my mom 
when she left Hungary uh, after World War II. Her name was Marika, mm-hmm. M-A-R-I-K-A. And when she arrived in Canada, they, you know, they said, you know, they, she, the story she told us was that they didn't know how to, they said they didn't know how to spell her name. So they said, okay, how about Mary? Like they were saying, is it Marie? She's like, no, it's not Marie. It's Marika. Right. <laughs> and then um, they're like, okay, well, how about Mary? And she's like, okay, fine, Mary. So she was always known as Mary. Right. And they, yeah. <laughs> So that happened. I think that happened with so many families. So you don't really, yeah, you're you're losing identity when that happens. Yeah. yeah. Now there's ballet and music, and I know like our oldest daughter, she studied the Royal Conservatory of Music and piano. Hmm, and wow. She stopped after grade eight, and you know it was a different teacher. She had this excellent teacher. And when we lived in Nanaimo, uh, we went to Victoria, and it just was not the same dynamic. And uh, she was about 14, and she goes, Mom, I want to quit. And I just thought, I went, okay. I thought, this is your decision. Um, I didn't want her hating piano. I didn't want her to force her to play piano. I thought, this is your decision. And what makes me feel good is times now, as a young adult, she'll tell me that she still wants to go back to it. She still wants to go back to it, right? So, um, but that leads me to, I'm thinking of ballet. I'm thinking of music. There is discipline. You need to have discipline, okay? So do you believe that the discipline from your ballet experience and music, because it's the viola you play. Yes, yes. Okay. Have you used that discipline when it comes to your writing? And I'm, I'm wondering how. Yeah, I think it's absolutely central to my existence. My husband thinks the only thing I write about is discipline, but I want to tell your listeners that's not true. I write a lot about love too, but I'm obsessed with discipline. And I do feel like ballet was my earliest experience with it. I mean, I really didn't have any talent. So I was, and I was studying at a professional school, so they would not advance me after age 12 or 13. Um, but I did go all in on music and the viola. It's sort of like what you just said. I had an incredibly spectacular teacher who taught me everything I need to know in life. He was able to teach his students how to practice. And in doing that, he kind of deconstructed or like reverse engineered the music so you could tackle it in increments. And I just remembered thinking my first or second week of law school, like this was going to serve me really well because it was all about um, figuring out the component parts and and not taking on everything all at once. So, um, so it's incredibly important to me. And in writing, I feel like so there's several answers to that question. It took me a long time to get my fiction published. I was reviewing uh, books. Etc. But I, I had a, a big, like many most fiction authors, a lot of tr- struggle trying to get a novel published. But I think the discipline of writing kept me kind of on track. I just kept writing. I just kept revising. I wrote new novels. I did. I just kept at it, and I I feel like it 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 really stood me and really good shoes in the sense that of persistence and understanding that discipline is 
is really where it's at. Persistence is incredibly important. And tiny little plug for my novel that's coming out in 2025. It's called Duet for One, and it is an immersive look into the music world. And and it's a love story set against the music world. So more of that coming. <laughs> that down. Duet for One? Yes. Okay. It's a Regal House is going to publish it in early 2025. We will talk. <laughs> we will talk. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. So I was hoping I could work this in. When you're talking about discipline, I saw, I'm just going to start the beginning of this sentence because it was an interview you had done. And you had said, if you can stay one sentence ahead of yourself as a writer, you're okay. Yeah. So what I I thank you for quoting that. What I meant by that was don't wait for the muse to strike. Get your tush in the chair and work because you I don't I'm not a big believer in inspiration or I guess a better way to say it is inspiration comes after hard work. So there's that beautiful French expression. I don't know if you've ever heard it. it's called l'esprit de l'escalier which is your finished up at your desk and you're walking down the stairwell and then you're like, oh, that's what I needed to do. But that kind of inspiration only comes if you put in the hours. So I'm, I, and, and so that's why I say like, don't wait for these like big grand ideas. I mean, a novel is an enormous project and it takes a long time. You, you've talked about that. It's so true. And um, so I can't think about the whole thing. I can only think about, is there a sent? can I stay a sentence ahead? And for that reason, I don't tend to write chronologically. I don't I write the book in order because if I'm stuck somewhere, I don't want to be stuck. So I'll just move somewhere else and try to work on that. And that's, again, that harking back to that sense of working in incre increments yeah. and not trying to tackle the whole thing at once because we can't. It's too yeah. big a project. And that makes me think of, it was near the end of Dealer's Child. I remember I had sent it off for um, my editor to just do mm -hmm. the copy edits and, and checking, you know, the punctuation. And I remember I'd be blow drying my hair and I this thought would come to me. And I'm like, really? Now? <laughs> now you come to me. Yeah. This line of dialogue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's why you have to keep a pencil and paper around because I I used to not put this stuff down, but now I do because I lose it. And then I'm like, why didn't I remember that? You know, because those ideas are meaningful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to, again, I want to squeeze in but just before wrapping it up here. We've got a couple of few questions. And I saw criminal justice. Okay. Mm -hmm. and I, I thought I got to squeeze in one more question. Okay. About criminal justice. Um I worked for, we have, we're a mix of Canadian, uh, UK, British, the legal system, and Canadian. And uh, so I used to work at what was called the Crown Council Office, which was the prosecutor's office. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I was the Supreme Court assistant. And then I worked in the office of the police complaint commissioner. And uh, so when I saw criminal justice, I thought, Ooh, okay. So I want to know about you were the founder, you're the founding executive executive director of the Butler Family Fund. And I want you to talk about that fund 
And I have to mention one thing. This may come as a shock because I, it's right now, it's 40%, 46% of my listeners are American, 43 mm-hmm. are Canadian, and then it's split up between the UK and Australia and, and Germany, actually. So uh, in Canada, when I worked at the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner, when a police officer was done his shift, he did not take his gun home. His gun went into his locker. Right. And I remember we had a conference and we had um, American officers speaking. This one officer had said he had gone to a grocery store. It was after shift and there's a robbery and pulled out his gun. And I'm like, whoa, right? because me, I was only thinking of the Canadian system. So, okay. Enough of me. Can you please tell us? Sure. So I I want to just clarify. I did not found the Butler Family Fund. I was the founding executive director. So the Butler Family Fund is a, what's called in America family philanthropy. They give money away. I worked for a family that had um, an endowment, essentially, and we um, gave grants away. So, and so I was in charge of designing the programs, and we got into – early on, we were doing anti-death penalty work. As you know, America still has a death penalty, unlike – almost every other country in the world, except I think Iraq and Iran, (laughs) China. Um, And we did spread out because, into other areas of criminal justice, because unfortunately, we can draw a really direct line, and I want to credit Brian Stevenson for this. He wrote Just Mercy, and he's a renowned death penalty lawyer here. Um, We can connect the dots from slavery to lynching, to Jim Crow, to America's penal system. Our penal system is incredibly racist. Um, It is racist most in terms of the victim. Uh, White victims tend to, the perpetrators where there are white victims get much longer sentences, harsher sentences. Um, Juries are prejudiced against black people. The racism infiltrates the whole system. And um, so we we were working in the area of housing and homelessness, but a, a future predictor of homelessness is having a criminal record. And sometimes your criminal record is for garbage, stupid things like, I don't know, you stole something from a grocery store when you're 15 and you're 40, you know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us did that, you know. So um, we have an incredibly punitive system. It's incredibly racist. And um, so at the Butler Family Fund, we were giving grants to um, black leadership, black advocates who were trying to shine a light on this. But also, um, our criminal justice system is $80 billion. It's way overfunded. We have way too many prisons. And it is harmful to black and brown people. It's not just neutral. It's harmful. There are all kinds of stories about a black or a brown person calling 911, which is our emergency number, and then getting shot or arrested when they were trying to, you know, it, it is terrible. It's so bad. And the more you learn, the worse that it is. So um, I'm not the person, only person to, to talk about this. Lots of people would rather defund the criminal justice system, move some of that funding over to things that actually help people. Um, and there's a lot of activity on this, but you don't have to be, I mean, unless you had your head in the sand for the last 10 years, we have a terrible, terrible opposite 
you know, we're, we're a country of opposites. Um, our guns are out of control. There's no reason that everybody needs an AR-40-15. Um, there's no reason for police to take their guns home. Um, there is a culture of um, not believing black victims, not, not uh, uh, over over punishing them. It's it's just endemic, and it's in every state. It's, it's the southern states are known for it, but it's also true in the north. So at the Butler Family Fund, we saw the strong links between homelessness and criminal justice, and we were giving money to advocates to, if they still do it, I'm just not there anymore, um, advocates to to try to change the funding, but also the perception. We need so many things to make us better, but we do not need the size of the criminal budget that we have in this country. It's just a waste of money. And it, okay. it harms family. It actively harms the perpetrators. But if you don't want to talk about perpetrators, we also have false accusations, false identities, that kind of thing, a false um, witness identification. Okay. But if you don't want to talk about them, it absolutely destroys families. We have millions of children growing up in this country without one parent, and in some cases without two, because they're in prison. That's terrible. Yeah. And, and we I'm, are, um, you know, I don't get to talk about this very much. You really yeah. pushed a button, but United States is is just behind. Yeah. I mean, we are we're in like the dark ages on this. I compared well, to any other country on the planet that we would want to be associated with. There's so many things I, I want to say. I am not going to say that Canada is better. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just mentioning our differences. And well, yeah, and I remember when I was at that conference, yeah, I heard that, you know, and I'm sure some people would say, well, it's a good thing the officer had his gun on him. Um, but I'm thinking sometimes pulling your gun is not that first reaction. Right. It's not the right reaction. No, okay? it can definitely make things worse and more yeah. people. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's hard to have the gun conversation, and I know we're not here to talk about and that. And I didn't mean to do this. Uh, no, that's <laughs> fine. But I think, I think. It's it it to me we look like crazy people. I I mean, I don't know why people need AR-15s. I I'm never gonna understand that. I've lived in this country my whole life, and I still don't understand it. So I'm very envious of you that you have gun control. I'm very very envious. Well, like I said, our country is not perfect, and we do have our very scarful history as well, mm-hmm. with respect to how we have um, behaved with respect to the. Um, indigenous community here horrible what we have done and um with respect to during the wars the camps we had we have our scars i hope there's change i hope there's change yes. for both countries for better for people okay. i agree thank you <laughs> I definitely agree any more canadian than that hey so. <laughs> anyway so we're gonna last two questions put this Flip this completely over, other end of the scale. My silly question is, how did it feel last Thanksgiving, breaking away from the tradition and serving lasagna? (laughs) Thank you so much. Well, lasagna started, um, I think my grandmother did it before I was born, but my mother took the holiday over in 1955. And my family, among our extended family, has always hosted it long after my mother died. So um, it, it felt, so this year I wrote a little piece about it. You were, you did good research. I didn't make a second turkey. We, we were so many people. We need two, two turkeys. Um, I made lasagnas and 
I have felt like teenage rebellion. I don't think my mother would have objected, but I'm like, mom, I'm not making the turkey this year. I hope it's okay. <laughs> um, she's long gone. She died almost 25 years ago. I think I think she would have been okay with it. It was just so liberating. I'm I'm afraid of that huge turkey. <laughs> I'm every year I have the same nightmare that like I the, that I I forgot to turn the oven on and everybody shows up and there's only raw turkey. <laughs> so, in terms of my stress level, it was great. <laughs> I, the, the, uh, the older I get, the more finicky my digestion gets. And it's like, turkey meat just doesn't sit well. Not cutting it, huh? You know, just, <laughs> I, yeah. So, okay. Last question. Last question, Martha. What is your proudest moment as an author? Thank you. And you were so kind to send these questions ahead and I didn't know what to say. So I'm going to say having my first novel published, it's just an incredible thrill. And the thrill is really in connecting with readers. Having this conversation is just a miracle to me. I love going to book groups. I'm happy to share that with your listeners. I'm happy to zoom into any book groups. I find talking to readers so inspiring and I learn so much from them. And that's just still a miracle to me. I think it always will be. Okay. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You're a busy lady. And I'm glad with our rescheduling, we made this happen. Thank you so much. I totally appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. And good luck with your writing. 